John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1403.DA0515, certificate number 42634, the Voynich Manuscript. Does anybody else count the letters in the message header? Why would anyone do that? The message header is three characters longer than it used to be. Not to give our listeners too much of a peek behind the curtain, but now that we're on a one episode a week schedule... It's required that you and I change our long and and um, well-established recording patterns so that... It's not required, but lately we've been doing three of these in a sitting instead of four. And because you are a cryptologist, you've devised this system whereby it's a constant... It's like a, it's like a rotary engine... A, uh, that's right. A, a triangle that's that's tripping through space. I'm really hoping the Nazis don't break my secret code, <laughs> or or Alan Turing, or whoever it is. But for how how long have we been doing this show? Four, five years. Five years. Five years. Uh, we have always uh, recorded with you going first, at my then, request, and then I go second. You have to wait for me to walk into rooms, and then you go third, and then I go fourth. I've never. Uh, hardly ever, maybe one time, did I, can't I, remember. Did I ever um, do my episode first. And this is of no interest at all to people who have heard them not in this grouping that only exists for you and me. Right. This is just between the two of us and our process. But in our universe, the the laws of physics have just completely changed because you had to sit down in a room yes. and record a show first. Yes. And 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 I think our listeners it it's maybe useful for them to know that every fourth show they've listened to in the past was a show that I recorded uh, and it was the last thing we were doing that day. At the end day. of a fourth show day. <laughs> and so you know every fourth show of mine or every every other show of mine you and I were both exhausted and and one of us was probably running late to take a kid somewhere right. or pick up a kid from somewhere one of us was probably looking at their phone probably it was you uh, well yeah cuz you're running the episode that's right if i'd been the fourth show you would have been running your phone but i got to play new york times spelling bee yes every week for a full show and it was fantastic so 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 to futurelings who are like it seems like every other show, John seems really tired and 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 says the word um a lot, and Ken's not really participating. That's why. But now... That's the show we canceled. Today, that's right. Today, I'm going first, and so why not just dive right into the topic? It's your special day. Let's just go right into the Voynich Manuscript. We'll just start at the top of the show, 
and uh, I'm just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Let's start with all things Voynichian. Mm-hmm. Let's just, I'm just, I've got all these notes here. I'm just, I feel so, got coffee throwing, flowing through my veins. We're going to see first show John for the first time. Oh, wow. And see how energetic he is. So excited. No, that doesn't sound interesting at all. Let's just talk about our lives and our day and <laughs> the, wander around for 50 minutes. I have a vague idea that the, the Voynich manuscript is one of these things that we get asked to cover on, on um, put, uh, enter into the omnibus fairly frequently. And in fact, this show uh, was requested by a Patreon listener named Jimmy. I'm just making up names. Jimmy, I'm right. Yeah. Suddenly, it, it, suddenly it seemed unlikely that we had a young street urchin named Jimmy who was like, Please, sir, will Mr. you do the Voynich Mr. manuscript? Mr. Roderick. <laughs> He's British, I guess. Uh, Jimmy was. Uh, Jimmy had suggested the Voynich manuscript more than once uh, to the point that he became frustrated and said, listen, I'm just going to keep putting the Voynich manuscript at the top of my suggestions until you do it. And he's been sending us mail bombs. Yeah. It's been a little awkward. Itching powder. <laughs> the, uh, and this is a generational thing. If I'm not mistaken, there's this whole class of things in my head that did not exist in uh, kind of the, the popular culture of the late 20th century where I came up. This uh, books of you know there were first of all there was no culture of um podcasts and youtubers and even you know niche cable tv shows telling you about the little the weird little nooks and crannies of history Mm -hmm. but even to the degree that there was though were those kinds of paperbacks there's this whole new set of things that have become commonplace through this internet ecosystem that we did not think of as cool historical things like everything that's been written about the we get asked to do the Dyatlov Pass incident, mm-hmm. a mysterious thing in the Earl Mountains in the early 20th century. Yep. Even though this happened Speaking in the tw- even though this happened in the 20s, nobody was talking about it in our generation. This is like uh, this is like a, everything that's been written about has been written since 2013. But now you've got a generation of young people who are like, well, yeah, everybody knows about this thing in the 20s, and they don't understand that it's cyclical. That the Voynich manuscript has was forgotten and then came back. Yeah, it's been it's been up and down with the Rolling Stones uh, over the over the last five hundred years, um, but you're right that it was a rarefied world of people that were interested in single volume cryptography, uh, you know, written on vellum. This the Voynich manuscript was the subject of letters sent back and forth between Egyptologists, right for for several hundred years before it got lost in a in a Jesuit library. It was not a world where millions of, of millennials and Gen Zers had opinions no. on the Voynich manuscript. Well, I think par- partly it is that it, when we were young, uh, In Search Of could only handle so many UFO <laughs> and Bigfoot and Yeti episodes. It's just interesting that there was a different canon of that kind of cryptid and, and mystery and uh, unsol- unburied treasures... Unburied treasures. Unburied treasures. A, a different kind of mysterious treasure that's right in front of you the a, whole it's time. A good, it's a good name for a book. <laughs> Thank you for unburying this treasure. Unburied treasures. It's a wonder that nobody has just taken it and spent it. Yeah, it sounds like a blur record. But you know, because new, the history is full of just an avalanche of this stuff, but only a small number get excavated and fixated on in popular culture. Yeah. Well, and, and cryptology, cryptography. Um, they, they really appeal to people who are looking for the secret 
that do, do you mean that in the sense of woo? Are we going to talk about woo? Well, because there is a there is a Oprah side of people looking for the secret for sure, and the and the secret as it connects to a lot of the topics we've done on the show, um, the, the flat Earth and the the um, the like. 9-11 truthers. Have we done a 9-11 truthers show? We haven't. You did Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right. That, I mean, there, and that, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a, is a past version of this that you're talking about. Secret manuscripts that, that, uh, that like, uh, lay out the, the, the real system behind world governments. What's actually going on. Um. Although it wasn't. But now there there is a, a there is a temperature I guess uh, in the world. There's always been the conspiracy that the, that what we see is not um, do, doesn't reflect the reality of the situation. That really the world is being controlled from from elsewhere. Secret subterranean puppet masters. But the woo side of it is also that there have been um, that, that there's evidence that we've had past visitations. Oh. There's such a profound desire to have there be a, a, a like a code, like a uh, like a Rosetta Stone that allows us to unlock some mystery that then will make our own lives, all the mysteries of our own lives, the 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 um, the sort of pedantic, small scale, like I'm expecting a letter, why isn't it here yet? Kind of mysteries that there'll be some reason behind it, that life isn't just so random and so governed by, by inattention and dumbness. Are you drawing a straight line between the lost masters of Atlantis and why won't my ex-wife let me see the kids? I do feel like... For there, a lot of people, I think there is some of that, right? Yeah, the, 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 it's so difficult to accept that, that the mistakes of global governance and of, um, of like late-stage capitalism are mostly the result of just base greed and small scale dummies who nobody's you know nobody's watching nobody checked the figures um governments aren't really capable of doing big scale conspiratorial things like it just took a bunch of people kind of following their manuals but not very well and yeah. all three of the people who could have thought of the thing in advance not thinking of the thing in advance somebody said to their secretary like i'm 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 going out for the afternoon just tell them that uh you know that that i was here and i say yes to whatever they say and then 911 happens exactly and then building 7 collapses and who <laughs> who's to right, say it was right there who's to say it was right there and then it wasn't but this, I think this is a smaller the Voynich manuscript is a is a subset of a subset of that um because it's so it's so it's so confusing in its in the 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 work and detail involved in creating a thing that had no clear purpose or place like there's not an occam's razor like solution to it every explanation for it seems equally outlandish is that kind of what you're saying well it there are lots of forgeries there are lots of sure. crude codes there are lots of um hoaxes history's full of them but there's usually it seems like some kind of relationship between the the difficulty and effort put into a hoax and what you would hope to gain from it. I see. Right? Like if you're going to fake Hitler's diaries, you're hoping to sell them to the the Hamburger Zeitung. 
um, or the Frankfurter Zeitung, right? Who bought that? And it, no, it was it was Paris Match. No, it wasn't Paris Match. Whatever, whatever your European <laughs> Weekly printed the Hitler Diaries. But you know, you're you're going to put enough work into it that you can fool somebody enough to pay you a million francs, and then it doesn't hold up eventually. Uh, and then we look back at it and go, oh, it was obvious that that was printed on notebook paper. Like it was Here's his plan. Yeah, Hitler Hitler didn't probably write it in a Mead spiral-bound notebook with a red Bic pen. Like, why didn't we see that all along? One thing I learned from that, whatever that Mark Hoffman documentary was about the um, the guy forging all the Mormon history stuff in the, in the I think, the 80s, um, is that Maybe there's like some psych- sometimes there's a psychological root at the heart of the deception. I mean, this guy really felt like he was going to take down the right people by, you know, tweaking the noses of the Mormon elders. Right. And that mattered to him as much as the as the check. So can we extrapolate anything like this for the Voynich manuscript? Like what kind of what kind of angry little man? <laughs> and right. Who could he who could he be angry at or looking to suck up to or but like the angry little man who's looking to to suck up to some uh, some church elder or some holy Roman emperor is going to hope that his manuscript is eventually decoded, right? There's no there, there's no point in in I should say right off the top that we have no idea what the Voynich manuscript is about if it's about anything it may say nothing and it doesn't uh, but it doesn't show any of the signs of a thing that says nothing. Uh, it sh- it's possible to analyze things and determine whether or not they say nothing. There are a, th- a hundred ways to analyze a text, uh, and all hundred ways have been employed to try and decipher the Voynich manuscript. None of them have succeeded. It appears to have semantic content, but we don't know what it is. Yeah. And why you would do that, why you would spend, a, a, why you would exert a, that much mental energy over 500 years ago to produce a thing that every new development of technology that would allow us to point a laser beam or a, or a uh, mass spectrometer at this document and finally determine, Oh no, this was written in 1940 or whatever. It keep all the results keep coming back to like, well, it seems like this was written in 1415. And so, so if something was written in the 15th century and is future proofed, it's clearly either time travelers or aliens. Well, there's yeah. only there's really only two options. That's the thing. So let's decide which it is. Right now, at the top of the show, before <laughs> I've even laid out the evidence. Clearly it's aliens. Time travelers. I mean, futurelings are probably going to be, they're, they're listening to this show right now, stirring a pot, which is a soup made from a recipe that they took from the, <laughs> a, the future translation of a Voynich manuscript. My God, it's a cookbook. They're like, this is so delicious. I don't, I hope these people figure it out. Soon they live in a post a post Vonichian world. Yeah, it's just they're you know it's like some vegan soup made from vegetables that we hadn't identified. But here's yet. my question: Yeah, who who is the angry little man who would take so much trouble to encode a delicious a delicious chickpea soup? It's a very compelling question. <laughs> what what is the oldest book you have a you have a a, a very a, a great library that. Um, I have that, a lot of books. It's a little different call, from having a great library. That we call the great library at your house. Yeah. Can, it's, can it's I just go sit in the great library? It's basically Alexandria. I noticed the other day I was in your great library, and you have two Emmy Awards now, conspicuously. Unlike the Library the of show. Alexandria. Yeah. You have two. two they had a, had a primetime Emmy. You have two daytime Emmys. But it's about the same. The conversion rate is about 2.6. 
Yeah, I so don't know 2. why. Two point six daytime Emmys is one primetime. It sounded Emmy. like I put an extra M in Emmy. Emmy. I don't know why. Emmy. It's because I'm going first. I have too much coffee in me. There are two M's in it. Yeah, we've never we've never heard. This is going to be like people who knew you before you were on your bipolar meds. They're like, hey, what's going on? This is lively. John seems really excited today. Now he seems really sad. Um. What's the oldest book in your library? It's probably just some uh, Captain ter- America comic. In terms book, right? of publication date, or like if I have a if I have a um, Oxford Study Bible, does that count as a two thousand year old book? No, I mean, do you have any interest, or did you ever first have editions. any interest in first editions collecting books for for the sake of their talismanic properties? I have a few, and they're not collectible at all because that usually they're in very niche fields. Go on. Are you interested? I couldn't be more interested. Yesterday, I, I ended up not buying it, but I spent some time reading a 1930s um, restaurant guide to Chicago. Now, actually, 1930, yeah, it's like 1930. So it's basically kind of jazz age. Right. The crash is here, but it's basically like, There's hey, still champagne in the closet. You want to go down to the south side. We call that the black belt. And, you know, this is where all the... This is where all the fine-looking uh, Negroes strut of a weekend. Ha-cha-cha. But white audiences, you know, are, are welcomed uh, and come see the hottest jazz. And, you know, it's, it's kind of offensive. And sure. the, the high yellow Corines and, uh-huh. you know, it's a, and I was like, I might, am I going to buy this book of 1929 yeah. Chicago restaurant reviews? It feels like yes. I almost did. But you didn't. I ended up not. But I do have a couple books in like a trivia space. Like I have some late 19th century first editions of like books of unusual facts kind uh-huh. of historically important ancestors of of Ripley's believe it or not and uh, these kind of of books it um, would seem like you would have a collection of almanacs like true. 19th century almanacs i i threw away all my old by old i mean like 1980s childhood copies of the world almanac mostly cuz they had been read too much uh-huh. by me <laughs> And we're falling apart. But the Jeopardy writers did give me a 2023 World Almanac for oh, Christmas. That's nice. So I have, I'm up to date on that. Does it? Did it? Um, did it tell you like whether it's going to rain next spring? It's not one of those. Oh, that's too bad. That's the kind of almanac you want, right? Yeah, like put in your sorghum before the <laughs> before the soil gets dusty between your thumb and forefinger. That's right. Uh, no, it's two thirty nine um, is a good number this year. <laughs> Almanacs are now just like here are the most visited national parks. Oh. Here are the uh, inductees into the Basketball Hall of Fame. This I feel is, like you and I still would enjoy reading those right. books. This is yeah. way more up my alley, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, the books I have are kind of 19th century, and they're beautiful. They're you know because books back then have the gold leaf and the right. Even though they're kind of maybe cheaply printed things by odd little men, they are are cool artifacts of kind of the dawn of an era of what if knowing things was fun instead yeah. of instead of just for the schoolroom. I have a mid-19th century Dickens that is um, huge and ornate. and. This is a text I once sent. I have a mid-19th century Dickens that's huge and ornate. <laughs> Come but over. She didn't reply. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful book. It's not like any kind of, I mean, I don't, a first edition Dickens, I think, would put all right. your kids through college, right? right? But it's a, but it is a, a, a like a, you know, mid-century, mid-last, mid-two centuries ago volume that, I don't know how it came into my possession, but it's a beautiful book. Do you know if it's valuable? I haven't looked. I went through a, a first edition phase because they were, that was that was kind of a fad, right? 15, 15 years ago. Um, I think people still do it. Oh, you, for you, sure. Used bookstores will still have a big section of a locked glass cabinet where it's like, 
Is that a first edition of Catch-22? But it seemed like it was a, a like a Hollywood fad where if you were like a rich celebrity and you were going to a party at a rich celebrity's, you would buy them a first edition Ooh. as a housewarming gift. You know, this is the era. You've been to enough Oscar parties to know that I have not. there are rooms in the back where they're giving everybody free Rolexes. Yes. Um, and You just want to give that person a flat gift that you can do lines off of. Right, exactly. Um, first edition of Sun Also Rises, nice flat surface the jacket holds the coke well and that's the thing like a first edition sun also rises is a expensive but b culturally accessible like it's not you're not expected to be smart you're not giving someone chaucer no you've presumably read it or if you haven't it's not you could put it on your bookshelf and people wouldn't be like whoa you read the sun also rises check out professor four eyes over here what's up smarty pants so it's a it's a type of thing that that uh cameron diaz could give to um, who would Cameron Diaz to, to, uh, McGee to McGee who directed the Charlie's angels movies. Exactly. Like I just hadn't thought about McGee for a while and I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to bring him up. Hey McGee, I got you a birthday present. Oh, Hey, this is great. And you know, it gets thrown in a pile, but it's actually worth $25,000. So I was in, I was into that and I spent, well, maybe starting 25 years ago, I would go to thrift stores and, and look to see if, if You're there right. were any cool th- first editions. And I bought a bunch, none of them worth anything. You know, eventually you figure out like, well, a lot of these are book club editions that aren't worth a penny because they printed a million of them. And some of them were bound nice. Yeah. So they put, you know, because it's the the whatever uh, Franklin Mint Book of the Month Club, you'll get a fine illustrated edition of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Next month it might be a portrait of the artist as a young man. But, you know, I had like the first editions of all of the uh the uh, Gulag Archipelago, which weighed as much as a Honda Civic. And that's why Marxism collapsed. And I tried to read under the weight of, I I tried to read all 14,000 pages. Um, but I, there's not a, there's not a super huge secondary market for Gulag Archipelago now. Sadly. Uh, although sun also rises continues to sell. Once again, the free market economy defeats Marxist Leninism. There it is. Here's my sign. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know which one to hold up. They they just printed too many copies of that because that's how a controlled economies work. Ken, we've got a new T-shirt design after uh, all this time. It's about time. Yeah, I know it is about time. And uh, not only is our new T-shirt design cool, but it does not incorporate artwork uh, submitted by one of our fans. It is entirely your and my idea. You wanted a simpler look. You thought maybe the big graphic tees were leaving out an audience who wanted something cleaner, smaller, preppier. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna cover the front of a t-shirt with a with a giant emblem, it should be three wolves howling at the moon. Um 100%. Whereas if you're going to do as we have done and release two matching t-shirts, Ooh. a match set. One in black says over the left pocket, left breast, compatible with Marxism. Mm -hmm. And then a matching shirt in gray, but that says not compatible with Marxism. Are you with me? Are you with me so far? In hindsight, maybe we should have done Marxism on the left and anti-Marxism on the right. Oh, that would have been smart. It didn't occur to us. Well, next time. 
But this is your chance to vote with your dollars. Do you want the compatible with Marxism omnibus t-shirt or the not compatible with Marxism omnibus t-shirt? We don't know. We won't know who won the Cold War until the numbers are in. So futurelings, uh, if you love talking about omnibus and love talking about politics with strangers and economics, which I'm guessing you all do in one form or fashion, these t-shirts are real conversation starters, even if you never, never leave your house. You and your uh, significant other, or insignificant other, depending on how compatible with Marxism you are. You can argue about the collectivization of farms for days. Yeah, you can wear opposite shirts on certain days and let that, you know, ignite conversation over the breakfast table. Go check out uh, our friends at Mediocrity own the means of production. So go Mm -hmm. to omnibusproject.com slash store and follow the links to these cool new uh, Marxist-themed t-shirts. They're so cool. But in the indie rock years of the late um, 1990s, early 2000s, there was also a lot of, well, you remember, and I think you're also a, uh, you were interested in typography and fonts and. Absolutely. And, and did you then go into the corresponding world of bookbinding and all of the kind of book, book as, as a fetish item? Were you into that universe? I was aware of the books of people doing it. You know, here's the here's how you get the oxblood paper paper marbling for your end papers. And yeah. I think somebody in my family had a few books. I don't know if they ever ended up binding anything. I somehow avoided the um, you know, bind all your comic books into bound volumes like you're a university library. Yeah. Although I know I know people I know (laughs) it's amazing. People were falling to the left and right of me (laughs) as I went over the top. I can't believe you didn't do that. But yeah, you were busy, I guess. Uh, Too lazy, probably. Saved by laziness. It felt like that was an early version of of the cottage core style or the um, you know, the beard oil uh like artisan uh, beard comb universe of people that were like, no, 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 bookbinding. Like that's the the future of art. It's um, <laughs> we're going to go back. We're going to get out of this Barnes and Noble ecosystem and go back to a time when we're making beautiful books. Here's what stopped me: all my books were already bound. Right. They'd already, I, they didn't need me to bind them. Maybe that copy of Leonard Maltin's movie guide that I had read so much that a lot of the M's and N's pages were falling out. Except, I, for, except for that, I was good. I felt like. You know, because I was making things then, right? Albums and and I was writing a lot and it felt like I probably these scribbles that I've put into all these notepads uh, that are like coffee and beer stained with cigarette ashes. Um, nobody, this isn't going to be a, big, a bestseller, right? I'm never going to publish this stuff anywhere reputably and no one, and I wouldn't want to. Because it because it's embarrassingly bad. But what if I made an edition of twenty copies that where each edition cost me two hundred dollars to make it, and then I t- either tried to sell those to fans or gave them as super duper special gifts to your to your special list. Yeah, and I do have a book of my tweets um, called. Electric aphorisms that was made by a local publisher who wanted a book. Do you have? Have I told you this story? Yeah, I think I've seen it. Yeah, Did the Sorrento, the Sorrento Hotel <clears throat> had this idea that they were going to have a very limited collection of books that they published. Sorrento Press, and then they would be available 
at the front desk, if you were staying at the hotel, like there'd be a menu next to your bed. Hey, here are some books that you could order. Aren't they still kind of book themed? Do they still do the silent reading events in the lobby? Christopher Frizzell's silent reading is there. Yeah. So they took my, that's so crazy now, that they took my tweets from my first year on Twitter, um, which was what, 2007. Jeez. Back when I still believed that all tweets had to be exactly 140 characters long. (laughs) And they, uh, and they made a 365 page perfect bound book of that first year of tweets and it was available at the hotel uh if you you might have been the first uh, ironically you of all people might have been the first person to have a a, a print run of your tweets and they ended up being popular enough that the publisher then made a second and then a third round of them people were buying them did they look nice by the way because the problem with self-publishing today is that they are We've totally lost that kind of bookbinding artisanal fad, and now self-published books are the ugliest object, not just books, but the ugliest objects in creation. They're, they're, they're interesting. You know, they're, they're, um, they're perfect bound, but just with cardboard covers, and there's one tweet per page, <laughs> and they are beautiful little books. I mean, the, the, the artwork on the cover was just my Twitter uh, avatar, except it had been made into a stamp, like a like a large right. uh, ink pad stamp, and so it was stamped, and each one was dated. I would love to have an ink pad stamp of my Twitter avatar. I know it was. That's the business to get into. Ink pads. I mean, think uh, there's it, probably forty people on Instagram that would make that for you tomorrow. And you could stamp all your correspondence with your social media avatar. Bonk. Ka-chunk. Yeah. See, genius. See, let's we're 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 taking it back. Anyway, I still have like hey, a sharks. little box of those. I'll, I'll give you one of those. Well, maybe it'll inspire some of your some of your your tweeting. You can read some of my old tweets and be you like, "This is how it's done." You should start retweeting all your 2007 tweets in order, like as <laughs> as penance. This is a palate cleansing. That's where Eleven Sided Lighthouse Made of Dreams uh, came from. It was some early tweet. You were just trying to fill I, out a word count. I was just tripping <laughs> balls, man. Um. So. The Voynich Manuscript is a, it's actually a, a, a book, what we would, what, what I think would have been called a, a, a codex. Okay. And a codex, if you think about the history of, of the printed, or I'm sorry, the history of documents, they were mostly scrolls. Up until you'd roll them up and put them in a cubby. Yeah, bookshelves right. were bookshelves looked like a hotel key uh, wall. Up until medieval times, medieval times. Um, yeah, scrolls were the preferred, uh, the, perf- the the or rather the largely the only way to hold documents. And I think the the first real. Um, Technological innovation, the first thought technology around scrolls was they, uh, they started to write on them sideways. So instead of starting at the top of the scroll and writing a continuous document as it unfolded, or as it unrolled, rather. Yeah, Kerouac style. You would turn it sideways and write in columns. Why is that better? Because um, then you could, rather than roll it up, you could fold it accordion style. Ah. And carry it flat, right? That's the one problem with a scroll is if somebody sits on it, then you've got like a flat tire. They had the worst possible shape for books, and suddenly they were like, wait, these should be flat. These should be flat. Then right. then camera deals can do coke off of them. 
and I think putting um, putting text in columns also has a a kind of it's, it, it facilitates ease comprehension, of ease of reading. Yeah. yeah, and that's why the eye. It's very hard for the eye to you know keep track over a long horizontal space. But if you keep having to flip back and forth, it's actually easier. Yeah, right. And I think if you're like, what what did that say two chapters ago? You know, to like be rolling right. your scroll back as opposed to. Roll your scroll back, they just, used to say. Just roll your hey, scroll, buddy, bro. Hey, buddy, just roll your scroll back for a second. <laughs> We're going to figure this out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but all of those, uh, you know, but pre-printing press, I mean, in China, of course, they were making beautiful paper. But a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of documents, most, would you say? Yeah. Most, most meaningful um, texts were written on parchment of some kind, which is made from animal skin. Um, it's leather basically. Yeah. Part like internal. Does it come from the tummy? Parchment is a word that means, um, well, and in fact, recently people that in the scholars in this universe have stopped using the terms parchment and vellum because they're, because yeah, it's insensitive to scholars to, to vellum Americans. Scholars cannot decide which words are fine, but they've started using the term membrane. Whoa! Uh, no, no, no! And no. it's a terrible. Trend. I, I oppose this. <laughs> it's a terrible trend. But no, the pro- why was I not consulted? <laughs> the problem is parchment is a uh, is an uh, overall term for uh, for writing that uh, that is on animal skin, and vellum is specific to calf skin. But it's often difficult to tell by looking at a thing whether it is goat skin, calf skin, pig skin. So instead of figuring it out, they just change the nomenclature. Now they're just like, no, it's on, it's written on membrane. It's so bad Yikes. that it makes me want to go shake someone by the collar. But I just I, I have such a long list of people that I want to shake by the collar that this is the, they would be in a long, long line. Nobody should be able to say membrane except for like my ENT and maybe Cypress Hill. That's it. Yeah, that's right. No, like except for that. Membrane is straight out. It's a word like moist. You don't ever want to hear it again. Except moist is just a performative one that people are pretending not to like. Membrane actually is unpleasant. It has brain in it. There's someone. It has member and brain. See? Oh, stop doing that. There's someone in this house that we're, or rather this bunker, that's on a, (laughs) that's on a level somewhere above us that honestly, if you say the word moist around them, they will become very agitated and i just don't understand it do you think it predated the the this is like the dancing the dancing fever of medieval times yeah did this person actually dislike the word moist before it became a thing to dislike the word moist as long as i've known them they have they've claimed this mm. well, I, but maybe you know they're og i knew a person that was like don't touch my feet one of these don't touch my feet people and um but when i first met them i didn't know they were a don't touch my feet person and I was in a situation with them in an environment where uh, foot touching is a customer. Well, where where I I, I ended up uh, holding their feet, touching their feet in a in a room full of people. Are you guys acrobats? No, were well, you, were you? of a kind. <laughs> and someone else in the room gasped audibly and was like, oh, "You're holding her feet!" And then she realized I was holding her feet, although she had been very aware I was holding her feet. But she became aware that she was being observed with someone holding her feet. And all of a sudden. It's against her brand. It was a huge event. And I was like, wow. But I've been holding your feet for like 15 minutes. 
So it did definitely make me think, is it really holding your feet that's the problem? This, by the way, is not a way to... to uh to uh, uh, trick people out of their um, oh no don't mental oddities don't be like you said you're uh, gluten intolerant <laughs> but guess what <coughs> I put a whole loaf of Wonder Bread in your smoothie I served you both of your sons <laughs> uh-huh. in a pie classic you said you weren't a cannibal classic mythological pranks um so the uh, how do we get into the Voynich manuscript uh, here uh, thirty minutes into the show yeah let's dive right in. Uh-huh. <laughs> So the Voynich manuscript only appeared in uh, in our minds, as you as you were saying. This is a thing that um, that every millennial internet surfer is aware of, I guess. But we, you and I, had never heard of it until right fairly recently. Um, but the world was not super aware of the Voynich manuscript outside of a very small niche of people uh, until. Uh, World War One, around World War One, an, an antiquarian bookseller um, who was a sort of Polish-Lithuanian expat who had moved to London uh, by the name of Voynich, Wilfred Voynich, or I guess in the Polish-Lithuanian it would be Wilfred Voynich. W's or V's and V's or W's? Yeah. Get it together, Polish-Lithuanians. Um, and he was a, he was a kind of, uh, he was a, Polish aristocrat, but from Lithuania in in the style of the great Polish empire. It, the Poles had uh, had colonized Lithuania. And he was a, you know, a late 19th century anti-Russian revolutionary who'd been imprisoned in, in uh, Siberia and had escaped and made his way to London full of intrigue sort of pre he was a revolutionary pre mark or i'm sorry pre lenin mm-hmm. <clears throat> and had acquired a kind of working knowledge of 18 languages and uh and somehow fell into the book trades in in late 19th century london as as an aristocrat might do an educated aristocrat that didn't have uh that didn't know how to didn't do anything. Couldn't do a trade. And this was at a time when book selling was a real fad and a, and a, and an indicator of a certain class. And uh, and then he was successful in his book trade. He was uh, he was someone who had a good fortune to discover some rare books. Um, he famously came upon. Uh, a copy of the Malermi, a Malermi translation of the Bible. And he was the Italian guy that who had, who first translated the Bible from Latin to Italian. And so the, you know, this was like a major, a major find. These guys always turn out to be forgers that always have these suspiciously good finds. Yeah. But, the, but, but not he, Voynich. He, Vo, Voynich, uh, you know, appears to have been very good at going to estate sales basically, but estate sales that were happening at the Vatican, He's, he's cuddling up to widows. Yeah, this was you know this was the time when you could go to Greece and somebody some uh, some goat herd would say, well, I found this. This Venus and Milo's pretty good. There, I'll yeah. give you a deal. The arms fell off. <laughs> what do you think? You know the the Turks aren't minding the store anymore. Like yeah. put put as many of these on a boat as you can. Um, and so at the end of the, I'm sorry, at the right before World War One, Voynich. His story is that he went to Italy 
um, there was a big, a big, what, not auction, but yeah, maybe auction. The Jesuits were running low on money and they had a, they, they just had bingo night. They had a big library of books that they had accumulated over the centuries and they were going to sell the library to the Vatican. But in the process of doing so, there were some manuscripts that didn't make it all the way to the Vatican. They were sold separately. Voynich bought 30 of them. And in that collection of books, there was this curiosity, which was a little volume of uh, written on vellum, clearly sort of showed all the signs of being a sort of Renaissance era um, basically like a uh, a book of uh, like an herbological book okay. describing different tinctures and so forth but in an unknown language and Voynich acquired it as part of a lot of things an unknown language in a Roman alphabet in an alphabet indecipherable an unknown alphabet, and in addition to being an unknown alphabet, it went into great detail describing plants of unknown origin. Um, no, How, do they know this via the illustrations? Yeah. Or? Oh, uh, oh, I see. Detailed illustrations of plants and um, and then astrological kind of star chart, uh, uh, horoscope hmm. stuff. But also not really, I mean... The, not it, our constellations? It, it is aliens. It does have our horoscopes. Okay. But it's, uh, but there are, uh, the illustrations also incorporated a lot of nude girls dancing in circles and lots of other symbology. Some things that, are universal. That's right. Uh, and they are human girls, so it's not, this wasn't written by uh, octopus people. No, one thing I've learned from Frank Frazetta Comics is that octopus aliens love human girls. Okay, so that's ac actually probably true, right? These could be space squids who, are, who like, are like, check it out. Our girls aren't sexy, but on Earth. Look at these sexy girls. Uh, and so the volume, right, would be just a thing. I mean, if if I acquired it, I would look at it and go, ha, 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 look at this weird thing, and I'd put it on a bookshelf. But, of course, there are people that are more curious than I am about Luckily, certain things. That's right. Luckily for pretty much every advancement in history. What was cool about it is that it that there was actually inside the book, and the and the book is, is written on vellum in quill-dipped ink. Like telegraphic um, script. It had a letter like tucked in it from a, uh, a scholar in Prague in, you know, 1640s um, by the name of George Baresh. And he was writing to an, like a famous hieroglyphic translating Egyptologist uh, by the name of Athanasius Kircher saying, I found, and Kircher was teaching at the Collegio Romano. Okay. Saying, I found this weird book. What language is this? And I want you to look at it and send him a sample of the writing. And so this, this, this letter tucked in the book was already by 1630. Um, there was this sort of scholarly back and forth. So if there's a forgery, it's sure not Voynich's because this script we know dates back to the 15th century. Right. Although <clears throat> the book or the letter does not, uh, the, the letter although authenticated doesn't make any actual 
traceable reference to the the manuscript or the language. It talks about a manuscript. I see. But the letter could have been retconned into... Somebody could have found this letter and been like, you know what would be funny would be to recreate this crazy book he's talking exactly. about. Exactly. Mm. Um, Kircher's really interested in it and tries to get Buresh to, to send him the book, but there's some kind of academic and social competition, competition between the two. Buresh won't do it, won't send him the manuscript, um, and keeps it until he dies. Then the, the manuscript goes to his friend, Jan Marcy, who it turns out, and he teaches at Charles University in Prague, it turns out he is a really good friend of Kircher's, and eventually, now 50 years later, 40 years later, the book finally makes its way to Kircher. Somebody actually looks at it. Kircher ends up, well, I mean, throughout, throughout this process, I think Buresh and his friends have been trying to translate it. Hmm. Kircher tries to translate it. He, there's a lot of research going on between these people that suggests that the book had actually come to Buresh because it had been purchased by Emperor Rudolf, um, Holy Roman Emperor, who was compiling a library. On the one hand, that's a little bit crazy that suddenly there's a big celebrity of the time. But on the other hand, how many people could read back then? Well, and how many, I mean, and what is this? There, there were these books. All this is happening after the invention of the printing press. But right. this book, we now have carbon dated and done all of the science around dating both the vellum and the ink and examined it backwards and forwards. And it clearly was made, unless you really want to have a conspiracy Get of forgery. The conspiracy weeds, yeah. Um, Clearly was made in the 14-teens. Including the ink. Yeah. So whoever drew those characters... And including the paint. ...has been dead for 600 years, unless they're an alien or a time traveler. Right. And so there was speculation among these people that this book was written by Roger Bacon, who is only four Bacon-Erdosh numbers away <laughs> from Francis Bacon. He's some kind of a, a philosopher? So Roger Bacon was... Natural w- scientist? Yeah, what we would think of now as a as a medieval wizard. Um, <laughs> you know, an English scientist and cosmologist and astrologer and... and uh, Isn't it crazy how there are two early English philosopher scientist types named Bacon? Mm-hmm. A last name that does n- no longer exists, but like two of the smartest people of... Uh, the medieval and then early modern period had it. And both weirdly connected to forging and secret messages in... Oh, yeah. Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare. Right. Well, not only did Francis Bacon write Shakespeare... He didn't. But but, um, but the theory was that Francis Bacon was wrote Shakespeare as a... Um, as, as a code. A, as a code. Yeah. As a crypt, cryptological code that was based around what? That certain letters were highlighted and that you you could take those letters out of the text and make a make a separate text is it less boring than some of the shakespeare plays oh it depends how much <laughs> uh, how much do you do you like love ken are I, you i love love yeah i know you do francis bacon and roger bacon not related right That's insane but this is the thing like what is your i you know we we both know what our bacon number is our kevin our, bacon number yeah. but what's our roger bacon number 
What is that? Is that like a Erdish thing? We have to collaborate on a work with somebody who collaborated with Roger yeah. or Francis Bacon. It must be right. I mean, I think I think, or is it just how how um, how boring how, we are? Well, I mean, how, how many weeks I'd have to be bored to read a book by either of them? Is that is that my Bacon number? <laughs> I feel like just just uh, using a time scale alone that our Francis Bacon numbers are going to be smaller than our Roger Bacon numbers, right? Because Francis Bacon is like Elizabethan, and Roger Bacon's like medieval, and Roger Bacon was was investigating uh codes and and was also making these kind of herbological and astrological texts and maybe this was and i think even in the even then the fact that this might be attributed to roger bacon would have made the volume more collectible sure. and valuable even in 1600 but it does seem silly i can think of one guy who did stuff like this i bet it's him yeah right um but how many you know how many books were there right. even in, in 1450. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. This was more than 50 years before that. They should have a book of the month club, but it's like the one book that Europe produces you get every month. The, uh, the interesting thing about it is that all of the attributions and all of the, the theories about where this book came from and how it was produced with every subsequent evolution of technology it casts more or or rather it validates it validates the authenticity of it uh so as recently as 2009 they subjected the vellum to like a a new spectrological test some new battery of yeah and they were like yeah 14 15 to 1430 that's that's what we come up with and the and the idea that the uh that it could have been forged on old vellum, which is done, um, which is done, has kind of been uh, like roundly debunked by the sheer scale of the book. The book has two hundred and forty pages. Wow! Um, You'd have to find that much blank and that's matching thing. vellum to find to find that much vellum that is that has survived since the fourteen thirties. Never been written on. Um, it could be a mad scientist who invented a really good eraser, new eraser technology, and he was like, instead of patenting this, they're, I'm just going to make a weird book. They're pretty good at that. You know, they can look and see. <laughs> and, you know, the whole process of creating vellum, it involves so much. It's such a laborious process. And none of the, that's the other thing about all the materials that were made, that were used in the construction of the Voyage Manuscript. None of them are particularly uh super lux. I mean it was all very expensive stuff and rare stuff or or rather labor intensive stuff to create at the time. In that economy. But it's not like a, a, a grade of vellum or of ink that you would reserve only for the Pope. It's pretty it's pretty like it is working like a, class a, a stuff. Nor- yeah, a normal uh literate guy. These right. are the these are the tools and materials he would have made and and acquired, right? But to have that many pages, 240, Or a woman, by the way. I hate to, woman, I hate to right. imply that the manuscripts or, has to be written by some. Or squid. Um, it would represent about 15 entire calfskins that to create. 15 calves. 15 calves. So much veal piccata going to waste. You can't get a calfskin without a calf, without skin and a calf. You know what I mean? Sadly, it's the only way. And no calf can produce two calfskins. Right. Without a time machine. Um, 
they and looking at what's in the book, it's fairly clear that it's an incomplete volume, that, that originally there would have been at least 272 pages. So we only have... It's like my Leonard Maltin movie guide. Pages yeah, fell out. Yeah, that's right. The M's and the N's fell out. Although in this case, what fell out was... Um, you can tell that there's astrology stuff or astronomy stuff that's missing. It's got every, it's got all those zodiac signs except for Aquarius and Capricorn. So January and February are missing. So we know at least, unless that's part of the weird code, uh, the beginning of some section is gone. Yeah. We know that. And, and this was commonplace books were bound and rebound. Um, and books were made out of what are called choirs, which are, little sections of folded calfskin. You would f- take a p- piece of calfskin, you'd f- you'd take four sheets of it, you'd fold it into eight leaves, which represented 16 sides of, that you could write on. It's pretty analogous to how paper books are assembled today, the, yeah. f- the folios right. in modern publishing. I think a choir now is 25 pages mm. because of choir inflation. <laughs> um, so it's it feels, it's clear that, that probably two whole choirs are missing. Maybe more. Maybe there was a whole section on like uh, squid human love that is gone. All the hentai has been taken out. It's tragic. <laughs> anyway, so so Voynich acquires this book in 1912 and immediately also kind of is looking for answers to it. It's curiosity. He's educated enough to know like, I don't know what this is and there's nothing about it. Yeah, and he's a successful bookseller. By He expands to New York City and has then a London and New York uh, uh, what store mm-hmm. and at one point has a million dollars worth of volumes, you know, pre and post war. Um, it's a lot he, of money back then. It, it was. He gets people examining it in in modern context, and over the centuries, um, a lot of work was done to try and to try and lay out w- what we're looking at here. Um, was this a, a a natural language that had been encoded? Was it a constructed language? Was it, it can't be a lost language, right? If there's a 15th century language, we'd know about it. Yes, but is it a, is it a natural language that's been that's using um, substitution right, right. has been turned into some kind of a cipher? A yeah. cipher. Yeah. Um, is it a phonetic representation, like shorthand? Right. Is it shorthand? Yeah. Is it? Um, Was somebody trying to write English but just had really bad penmanship? And what was it writing during an earthquake? It, it, it doesn't appear to be that there's a, there is <laughs> They're a, not squiggles. There is a Voynich alphabet, uh, that seems to be comprised of about 25 letters. Like, so it does seem like that could be a cipher for an English, for a Roman alphabet, but, but no, it does not perform like a, it, it, it follows natural language rules in some profound ways that would be very difficult to fake over the course of what uh what ends up being 170,000 characters oh wow uh, it's a huge corpus 35,000 w- what you would call words 
Generally, um, that's enough to analyze and yeah. break a code. Right. I mean, how many words are in one of your Ken Jennings books? Ooh, I don't even know. But 240 pages is about right. 35,000 words? Do you want me to do a word count right now on my book? Let's I feel see. like a lot of my book deals are for like 100,000 100,000 words. Is that possible? Maybe some of them are 50. Feels my, like 50 is. That's because you stopped reading halfway through. You got bored. Well, no. I mean, I didn't. I read all the way to the end. I just sort of skimmed the all the, the, the kissing parts. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's see what the word. My, my book coming out in June. I'm opening it up right now. Well, this is a, I didn't realize this was going to be a. No, like a, think about the suspense we're creating. No, a, a, an internal ad for your upcoming <laughs> book. <laughs> Uh, Your book coming out in June. What's it called, Ken? Well, thanks for asking. One hundred places to see after you die. It's it's kind of a, a funny pop reference book. So it's not maybe it's shorter word count wise than Mapet or something, but it has seventy two thousand words. Okay, so this is about half that much. But it, the book is mostly written as a single column of uh, of text and then illustrations throughout. Um, there's a lot of there are pages trying to determine how many pages there are in the book is kind of tricky because a lot of them fold out. So pages have different sizes. Yeah. They can, the illustrations end up being, um, pretty large because it folds this way and then that folds out and then right. this folds out. It's uh, got a centerfold. It does. It has multiple center centerfolds, but the language, uh, sort of defies being reduced to any kind of s simple or complicated cipher. And during the middle part of the century, um, people really started to throw themselves at decoding this text. And yeah, I was wrong when I said most of the interest on this is recent. There appears to be, if you look at publication dates of books about the Voynich Manuscript, it comes in waves. But, yeah. you know, the 60s were fascinated with it, as you might imagine, um, and then more recently with the internet. Because the Voynich Manuscript is a classic puzzle that every new generation of code breakers wants to use their new discoveries in breaking code. I've got this new word print algorithm. Let's see what it says about Voynich. Exactly. And, and so, you know, right after World War I, there was a lot of new sort of code technology uh, that, that, um, that people applied to translating the Voynich manuscript. And what we end up with is a, a, a great corpus of data because everybody's trying to process the 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 data in the Voynich manuscript a different way and they all lay it out a new way um as soon as IBM had punch cards there were people that had translated everything in the Voynich manuscript into you know the alphabet into punch cards um after the enigma machine the the, World War II. the the turing era of code cracking now we've got new knowledge about codes we can apply to right and all of that sort of you know the, you can imagine the excitement of of people coming out of a um a post-world war ii code breaking mentality saying oh let's go back to that voynich manuscript this is the one where we're gonna we're gonna finally crack it like, and, it and it looks like there are like periodic popular bestsellers of people like i did it i have un i have solved the enigma of voynich so that's the thing and it, it, I, we could do four episodes on the number of people who have come forward with a theory 
Uh, because it's easy to say like, oh, it's just a substitution document, and then it's easy to disprove it. It's easy to, easy to come forward and say, no, it's an uh, you know a, a polyalphabetic. Uh, yeah, I, I've never understood code. when people claim to have cracked a zodiac letter. You know, right? Look, you either cracked it or you didn't. Like, uh, it'll be clear whether your solution is a solution or a theory. Well, what you get is a lot of a lot of people that do like any kind of. Uh, puzzle solving where if you assume this, this, and this, mm. then this means that, then you can see, you know, if, if you agree with me that every time at the end of a word, it, you know, the, the, the pen stroke right. kind of leaves a, a mark going up. If you agree with me that that's a vowel, then what this is, is a book of recipes for. But, but obviously it could not be a full solution that, where that theory holds throughout the manuscript. It's, right. All these have to be kind of just partial hand-waving attempts. And that's what happens. Um, there's, there has yet to be a, an uncontroversial cracking of the code. Every time somebody comes forward, they manage to translate 18% of the document or claim to have, have translated 30% of it, but they can't show their work. Um, or it ends up that it's, you know, it's really, um, it's really in Hebrew, except uh, none of the letters are Hebrew or even refer to Hebrew letters, but it's in Hebrew because I felt it, uh, because I saw it in a dream. Some of these are probably self-taught experts who are sharing their... Yeah, and, and a lot of people that are, that, are, that are using their other, their other skills, their computer scientists, their... Um, uh, People that that do work in language but not in code. Yeah, um, there are people that really want it to be about secret markings. You know, there's so many different over the centuries, so many different ways to to uh, to to put information in a document and make it seem like it's one thing, but it's. So these people are saying most of this is noise. The signal is actually the seventh character in every third paragraph. And if you just look at those, you know, a very common attempt to solve it is actually, it's called the Bacon cipher. This is a, this is a cipher. Francis or Roger or this Kevin. Is, this is invented by uh, Francis Bacon, where the meaning of the text is actually in the presentation of the text as a visual medium. It's not about the Right. It's not about the words that are in the it's text. The it's shapes of paragraphs the, or where exactly, the line breaks are. Exactly. The, uh, whether certain letters have been traced over, yeah. whether, and so a lot of work has gone into solving it according to a Bacon cipher. Um, and that would and, be very attractive because it means you can actually, you know, to an amateur solver, that I mean, m almost all of what appears to be a signal is just gobbledygook and your solution doesn't have to account for it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but every. Every indication is that this is not gibberish. The handwriting has a kind of like a very, a very fluid ductus, which is to say it, it, it's not right. It looks like jerky. it looks like somebody not trying to produce a symbol they don't know, but somebody trying to write in a, in a system they're familiar with. Yeah, that's right. There are no there are no visible corrections. There's not the kind of hesitancy that you would have if you were looking at a document in one language and trying to then encode it uh, into another. A character at a time. It has it has real fluidity. It has real um, the the there's no punctuation in it, but 
at this point in time, punctuation was still evolving. We've talked about that yeah. in, in the omnibus. This is pre-printing press, so punctuation was um, was still still you know very uh, not not uh, not random over uh, across authors, but still optional. Um, but it is, it is broken into paragraphs, um, and it does I, – I read a thing the other day that said that if, if you say uh or um, somebody on the, on the FutureLink site said that I say uh a lot. Everyone like, says uh a lot. Well, I know, but, but in the United States, there are, there's a clear geographical differences between people that say um and people that say uh. Wow, there's an uh-um line? Yeah, and we live in an uh – area and in the south and in the northeast they say um um do you think that could be changed but i mean all this stuff's getting flattened by tv but do you think somebody like jeff goldblum who says uh 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 you know do you think he can change speaking patterns it seems to me that um requires more effort than uh like yeah. uh is just half of um why smarter, would you smarter people say uh because we think of the next word without having to get a, a Closing consonant, a terminal consonant. Yeah, why would you have? Why would you go all the way to like, r- like rounding it off? Plus, um, and when you get your mouth in the um shape, you're gonna have to go somewhere, and some of those things don't follow an M very well. Sure, you gotta th- either throw back to the uh again, um uh, but anyway. Yeah, there are um ah uh, people. I just I just caught myself saying uh and realized, oh yeah, I am an uh. I'm sure at some point, and probably now, there's a processor you could run an audio file through and take out all your uhs and ums. Oh, I bet there will be. And you'd sound 17% smarter. But by the time we do that, we could just have a thing that was just making this show with with AI representations of our voice. Chat GPT. The, the book itself sh- uh, is separated into six sections, and, they, and, and, and those six sections kind of ally with or align with um, books that were that were commonplace at the time. It's an uh, an herbal glossary, like an herbarium. It has astronomical and cosmological and pharmacological or pharmaceutical. Um, it's an exegesis of of that kind, all of that sort of natural world stuff. Pretty it's much a handbook. Pretty much all of science that exists at the time. Right. Um, this is their Encyclopedia Britannica. They're just a lot dumber than we are. And although I was kidding, it uh, it really does have a lot of recipes. It's just that we don't we can't look at any of the. It's clear from the formatting and the illustrations that they're recipes. Yeah, mm. but we but but only a couple of the illustrations of plants look anything like any plants we know. There's like a fern and like a a pansy maybe that are like well that's clearly a uh, what if it's just an incredibly fern. bad artist. Or somebody with aphasia who's like, "Yep, I really nailed this picture of a uh, mandrake root, and the, it looks and the, it looks nothing." The like thing it. is, the naked girls all look like naked girls. So <laughs> again, um, again, some things are universal. So anyway, uh, by the time Voynich died, he left it to his wife. His wife left it to her friend. Weird. And her friend tried to sell it in the 1950s, and uh, the antique bookseller that uh, that was trying to to sell this book couldn't find a buyer now if you think about the the popularity of the Voynich manuscript now uh, sure think how many internet millionaire nerds would exactly. be exactly 
writing seven-figure checks. Elon Musk would pay $420 million for Martin it. Martin Shkreli would trade you his Wu-Tang Clan album for it. But in 1957, nobody, nobody cared. And so it stayed in the possession of this bookseller until the late 60s. And in 69, he said, you know what? This is taking up space on my shelf or whatever. He gave it to Yale. Nice. And where it remains. So it's at the Yale Library. Uh, I don't know if you've been to the Yale Library, but it's a pretty nice place. I have not. It's got a bunch of Gutenberg Bibles. Will they let you check them out? No, they're under glass case. But, you know, you walk around and you're like, eh, yeah, this is one of those. Like, they, they sure want you to know what they have. Yale's doing okay. They're like, that's a relief. Hey, check us out. Guess what? Guess why we're Yale? This is one reason. Um, and it remains, a, like, at, as you said, it's now kind of a, a, a faddish... Um, puzzle for a generation of puzzle solvers no no attempt to translate it has yet produced any reliable results it sits there as a thumb in the eye to all of us it seems impossibly complicated and and internally consistent to be a forgery or a hoax it would represent the life's work of someone composing a fake language that that shows all signs of being a real language, and even today, you know, it's a this really uh, the, a lot of the questions involved here are what do you believe about what are your beliefs about how history and time period change people? Do you think of a 14th century person as basically us with a different kind of education, or is his or her brain fundamentally? different because of how they've been trained to think about the world do they you, you know what i mean like yeah. you know if, if you postulate a 21st century person who's like you know what i'm a i'm kind of a fun uh art project kind of a guy i'm gonna spend 10 years putting together a voynich manuscript you know maybe that kind of person with all their resources online whatever time's available to them they can do it but it's hard to imagine the 14th century person 15th century early 15th century person who can, uh, you know, who has the free time, who has the educational resources, who can master all the physical skills involved. There's a lot and of... just the imagination. You know, we now live in a world where we're kind of aware of this kind of a fun art piece. Who would have that idea in the early 15th century? What's curious is that the writing between scholars who had seen it and who wanted to see it and, and who studied it in the time... They all speculate about the author and about the author's motivation, and they have a lot of the same speculations that we would. Like, well, the only reason you would do this is to sell it to a wealthy person who would be, you know, who would think it contained the secrets of the universe. But why wouldn't you make it more like that kind of a yeah? If you were, if you were trying to pawn this off as the product of Roger Bacon, why wouldn't you have more evidence that Roger Bacon had done it? If you were trying to sell this to Emperor Rudolph as a hoax, why wouldn't there be more, uh, like clear? Yeah, if you wanted to things have, to appeal to it, if him. you wanted to have magic elixirs in it, why aren't the plants real? Right. Yeah. If if you yeah, if supposedly it's a cure for scrofula. And it, so, is it a? Uh, is it like a? Is it a person who? Is it made by a person who truly is? I guess it could be, I mean, mental illness sure uh, existed uh, the, then too. Right. The product of someone who is, who is a fantastical thinker, like a, like a hermit 
type character who's making uh, raw art in their attic. Right, outsider artist type, genius jokester type. Um, I don't know, just but, like dumb Kevin. Or I mean, you know, with the sense that he, he you know, somebody a neurotypical, a neurodivergent person whose brain is just working at a different level than anybody in any century since. But even then, for them, for a person like that to be working in complete isolation and produce one volume that finds its way into the you know, all the way to the doorstep of the Vatican, but no other, no other sign that... Maybe he did so many and they got lost. He was so good at this, he could turn out one of these every six months. And, and they're going to start turning up now. <laughs> well, yeah, forgeries, well. And that concludes the Voynich Manuscript. Entry 1403.DA0515, certificate number 42634, in the omnibus. Futurelings, we were products of our time. We were so into social media that we even had hotels publish collections of them in one case. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings. One of us did. Uh, the other one is at John Roderick, jointly at Omnibus Project on various social media uh, platforms and quagmires. Uh, you could res- you could send us email in our century at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could send us physical mail as well. Oh, yeah, you, you, you came in with a box today. It's a question. Like, now that the show is um, coming out at half its previous frequency, which other things change? Are people going to mm. send us mail at half the previous frequency? Because, I doubt it. I mean, they have as many hours in the day to think about going to the post office. But, you know, if you think of every mailing as being inspired by a certain number of minutes of content. Right. Maybe uh, maybe the mail trickles down. Oh, I see. Right. There's there are fewer fewer things to Im- fewer things to inspire sending us. Stuff. No, I think what we're going to get is people are like, I was listening to your episode from 2019, and well, that is actually happening in the addenda shows. Because one thing I realized this month is, you know, we'd have to do a monthly addenda show, but now it it's going to cover f- five shows from last month instead of nine. Right. Um, but luckily, we are absolutely getting a corresponding increase in, uh, hey, do you remember when you guys talked about the SS United States or whatever? And I'm like, barely. I think my kids were still in elementary school. Uh, we got a book called of National Geographic's Sacred Places of a Lifetime. That is an enormous book. It combines our two interests, geography and woo. Oh, sure. Sacred places. And it was and beautiful pictures of, yeah. you know, odd ziggurats. And uh, minarets in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this was sent to us by Crystal, who emailed us to say she was also the one who sent us the crystals. Oh, Crystal, you made my Christmas. Uh, you gave me a crystal Christmas. A very did, crystal Christmas. Did I did I talk about this already on the show, or did you and I talk about it separately? I think we might have recorded it. I, uh, I definitely, on, on Christmas Eve, I didn't have enough stocking stuffers. And I found crystals, crystals. You found a strange magnetic power drawing you to this table. I did. I went down to the mailbag and I was like, come on, there's got to be something in here. I found the crystals. I divided them up into into whatever, five or six were separate they, bags. Were they gleaming like the, the stones of Shankara from Indiana Jones and the they Temple did. of Doom? I, I opened the mailbox and a bright light came shining out and I was like, choose wisely. Oh. And uh, so I gave, and then I found a way in, in looking up what the crystals represented found a way to give each person that got a bag of crystals, not everybody did, but the people that did, I could make a compelling case that I had chosen those crystals because that was the chakra that that person 
most needed. All the Who's down in Whoville had their chakras aligned. That's right. And so each person, as they pulled the crystals out, I was able to say, oh, well, that's for your heart chakra. Oh, that's for your, your weasel chakra. And they There's no weasel chakra. And they chakra. were like, wow, thank you. It seemed like the most thoughtful gift. And you know what? It turns out it was. It was just thoughtful on the part of Crystal. Well, I felt bad that we had not named the person who had sent them to us because they came without a... It came without something and wrapping in bows. Right. But, uh, in fact, her name was Crystal, so we did say her name a bunch of times. That Sacred Places of a Lifetime book gives every indication of being a thing that you are not going to take home with you. There are some things that you leave here, uh, and that one seems like one you're going to leave. You're kind of implying that I take all the good stuff, and and I don't think that's true. I think I leave everything here because I don't want this stuff to accumulate (laughs) in snowdrifts in my house. I'm going to give that to my daughter, and I'm going to be like, look at this book that I got for you, sweetheart. And she's going to really dig into it and say, like, Dad, look at all these ziggurats. The pictures on the front seem chosen to appeal to a broad array of people. Like, here's Easter Island for world travelers. Mm -hmm. Here's Devil's Tower for... You know, patriotic national park stampers. There's that Rio de Janeiro Christ, right? But here's for for your Christian audience. Here's here's Christ on Corcovado or wherever it is. Christ in the Andes. I don't know which one that is. There's but there's also like a some kind of a New England chapel, a whirling dervish, sure, um, all kinds of mysticism and 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 uh, and belief are represented here. You got the Kaaba on the Kaaba on the back. It's really good, awesome. And then what do we have here? This has got to be fake. Listener J. Wesley Hardin. What? That's a Come pen, on. That's a pet name. Come on. Uh, is a fan of Omnibus and his band Old Lonesome just recorded their first record. Well, in late 2019, but, you know, they haven't been able to tour on it due to COVID. And they pressed it in vinyl. It is. Where are they? I'm trying to see where they're from. Oh, and it's Engineered got, in Nashville. It's got artwork uh, reminiscent of like Decca records from the sixties. Yeah, the design's really nice. It really, is. and he, so he sent us two copies of the old Lonesome's first record, "Turn It On." That's delightful. Thank you, uh, Jay Wesley, if if we can call you that. Thank you, Jay Wesley. Uh, uh, those he, are beautiful. He is apparently a bassist and vocalist. Says the liner notes here on the back, and a bunch of stickers. For their band. So if you ever want a sticker that says Old Lonesome to wear on your forehead or something well, when, you, to, when you walk into a party. Not to keep giving all these gifts to my daughter, but she's really into stickers now. And like a lot of people who are newly into stickers doesn't really care what they say. She'll find a way to make Old Lonesome part I, of the I, world. Both my kids had phases where they absolutely had to cover some object with stickers. So it was all surface area. Like, yeah. why does my um, Contigo flask not have enough stickers on it? I, w- I would... Uh, I would make a joke about it except that i have a guitar case that is entirely covered with stickers so i i did it too we have so much mail uh here's somebody here's ty is in budapest and he confirms that taking the train across hungary is indeed faster than walking there you go can confirm i would have assumed <laughs> i would have assumed but thank you for your empirical evidence uh sparky i believe our truck driver correspondent must have been in providence rhode island and this says, any written notes from 1906 will be considered null and void. They will not be included in the official record. Huh. See, if you're wondering how the Voynich manuscript gets written, think about something like this. Somebody finds that 100 if, yeah. years from now. Any written notes from 1906 will be because How much of our mail looks like outsider art? Half. Yeah. <laughs> at least. At least. Fully 40% of it is outsider art that probably has value on the market. Thank you for sending us all these 
things. Uh, if you have something odd that you would like us to consider, please send it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, forthwith. Um, find like-minded people to chat with the Voynich Manuscript and share your theories about it uh, in the, fe- the Futurelings groups. I just said, uh. Actually, uh, I said, uh, uh, like a, a vowel that doesn't exist in our language. Possibly in the Voynich alphabet, it does. Uh, the Futurelings groups on uh, Facebook and elsewhere. And uh, the best way to support the show is what Jimmy did when he was able to uh, blackmail us into talking about the Voynich Manuscript. He donated at patreon.com slash omnibus project. And that's the kind of selfless support that keeps uh, entries of this show stamped onto titanium discs and uh, buried in the vault. I should say it just, uh, in order to be complete. Postscript. Within the Voynich manuscript, it appears that there are two separate Voyniches that give uh, that, that that seem to point to the fact that it was written by multiple authors multiple authors there's wow. voynich a which is the which is what's <laughs> used to describe you know sort of half of the content the the um the herbology and the and the astrology and then there's voynich b which goes into the pharmacology and the uh, and there's a you know extensive section on on baths, how to take baths. And, on baths? Yeah. Like, you kind of buried the lead. This I is didn't. this is what must be a... You should try to crack the bath-taking part. I think I have. I mean, <laughs> even if even if the Voynich manuscript does have... Even if Roger Bacon was taking very advanced baths, you feel yeah. like you've recaptured that technology? I, I've either gone... I've either tried them out and, and dismissed them as as bath opportunities, or I've, I've expanded on them. So the Voynich manuscript is just like... It would be like a... a uh, like an internal combustion engine from the 1970s. Well, it's, it's time to start recording your findings in a weird constructed language of, of your own invention. So how do you feel about me going first? What, what, this show doesn't seem to have had any more energy than or vitality than any of my shows. Full of ums and feels like it was made by a lazy raccoon. I think it did. No? Had more, more energy, you think? Well, I mean, who, no matter who goes first, we, all, we have the added lift of knowing we don't have to do four shows today. Right. Which... which Lifts all boats, right? In my opinion, yeah. And you've probably spent what ten percent of this show thinking about your show. Uh, I actually haven't. We'll see what happens when I have to go second. Oh, right. That's you when have the, to go that's second. when the wheels go off the wagon. All right. Well, we'll try it out next week. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Um, what if it does? <laughs> If the worst comes soon, um, this recording, uh, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese. Uh, we wish you uh, many goods and uh, cheese. Uh, uh, and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the on.